Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus. For every Friday, we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. If you're tuning in for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we present a funny blooper or mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. So since our guest today speaks French and has worked in France, I thought it would be appropriate to present a sign in English on a Paris women's clothing boutique that said very simply in English, dresses for streetwalking. With that, uh, today's guest is Max Sutherland. Max comes to us comes to us with extensive international experience from his time on Wall Street in commercial banking, in global payment projects, mergers and acquisitions, and big four consulting, to his current role as president and CEO of the World Trade Center Atlanta. With responsibilities having spanned six continents and numerous cultures and industries, he has strategized, managed, or worked nearly every in nearly every country in the world at some point in his career. He earned his bachelor degree in political science and economics from Indiana University, attended the Princeton University in France, sorry, Princeton University in France, and received his MBA from Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Max speaks multiple languages and, as is, and is a champion for understanding peace through trade. Hello, Max. Welcome. Philip, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Pleasure. So perhaps we could start by your sharing with us a bit about your background and how you grew up and how you gained your global experience beyond what I already just said. <laughs> it, actually, there is a lot there. And I got to be honest, I was very lucky. Uh, born to a German mother, an American father. Uh, the German side of the family still remains in Germany, but visited here when we weren't there. A story that I love to share with everybody uh, is that uh, I was actually a pioneer in aviation history. At the age of 11, uh, my grandmother in Germany requested that only I spend my summers with her in Europe to begin my formal training uh, for public service, more specifically the diplomatic corps. This was pre-dereg, so this was before. Uh, I think deregulation was in 72. Two or 73. And uh, I flew transatlantic from Indianapolis to uh, uh, LaGuardia, changed LaGuardia to Kennedy, Kennedy to Frankfurt, changed in Frankfurt onto Nuremberg uh, with unaccompanied. No, uh, no adult flew with me. No, uh, nobody else flew with me. And how old were you? I was 11 years old. Wow. And uh, that was at a time when there was still a lot of kidnappings going on. So mm. my parents had taken out an insurance policy to pay any ransom just in case. I found out about that many years later. <laughs> I knew that they had taken out a policy, but I didn't know why. Uh, and I found out many years later that it was to pay ransom in case I were kidnapped. Uh, but most uh, children who did not fly with the parents either flew with bodyguards or nannies or uh yeah some uh, uh, a, a, another responsible relative and I, and I did not so i was lucky in that respect and that actually kind of set uh the the 
um, the path of my education and my career. And then subsequently, my education, my uh, work experience had always then been in the international space due to my language skills and my knowledge and exposure to European cultures. And then global scope was only a natural progression from that. That's fascinating. It's wonderful that you grew up and grew up international in that way. Yeah, I was lucky. I was lucky. <laughs> um, well, speaking of international, what does international business mean to you? Is it something that, you know, if a person is just writing a book or doing uh, a seminar abroad, is that international or is it something more than that? Well, anything that happens outside of our borders is, uh, of course, international, but there's a lot more that goes into it than just that. There are, of course, cultural insights, nuances, sensitivities that have to be considered with regard to the product, content, the target audience, distribution, marketing, financial interactions, platforms, et cetera. So international business is everything that you would do here, mm -hmm. but on a much larger scale because there are a lot of things that are done here intuitively because you grew up in this environment. Right. Overseas, you have to learn what uh, you don't know. Ah, yeah, that's fascinating. Other, other guests have said the same thing, to learn what you don't know. Of course, you, know. you don't know what you don't know until you know it. That's exactly it. Um, of the many ventures you've done or have had, uh, which do you feel have been most successful? Well, having come up in the Fortune 15 environment and the, working on Wall Street and the big banks, they have a lot of resources at their disposal. So they don't really go into anything where there's a blunder. Uh, they iron out any potential blunders long before they happen because they've been there and done that a century ago. Right. However, I do want to share that I, I took a little break uh, in my corporate career in the mid nineties. Uh, and uh, you know how everybody, uh, most people want to play in a rock band or something like that. I always wanted to record uh, a, an album back then it was an album. Uh, and I, uh, asked the right questions. I was introduced to the right people and I ended up launching, uh, I recorded two, two club songs, two dance songs. And I marketed these songs, um, on both CDs and vinyl, uh, around Europe and North America. And, uh, I had the, first off, I had the time of my life. I also did a music video that aired here in uh, New York for about eight eight months so i had the time of my life doing it, was, I it was this were you, were you part of a band were you no, singing playing no, i i was singing uh all the instruments were uh computer produced except one wow uh, the saxophone was the own only live instrument and that was lou marini from the blues brothers band and saturday night uh live that uh played played uh live for me wow uh, and I did it for a couple of reasons, but on from the business perspective, it was to test my marketing uh, theories because I'd always been on the operations side of the house in and uh, in, in, on Wall Street, and I uh, felt that the operations side and the sales and marketing side were not communicating well. 
So I tried out my theories and my theories of niche marketing worked. And I, as a result, I ended up hitting the charts in Spain with one of the songs. Wow, that's great. And how old were you when you did that? Oh my God, I was um, 35. Oh, you're an older uh, musician. 36, 37, somewhere around in there. Yeah, my, oh. my mid-30s. Okay, I thought maybe you were a teenager or something. No, 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 no. I took a break from Wall Street. Oh, and from then Wall I Street. In, right. And said, I went back in. Yeah, that's incredible. That's wonderful. Um, perhaps, uh, are there any... Um, you said that, obviously, there were no business blunders in the banks themselves. Um, do you know, of, have you heard about any blunders that other companies perhaps have done? Well, you know, they, they have the notorious one, and I, and I understand it's really not not true. It's the Nova car. Uh, yes. Uh, but we all know that that's supposedly not true. Right. Or at least we're, being, we're being told that's not true. I did have a personal blunder early in my career. When I lived in Paris, uh, I was in, I was around 19 or 20 years old, I think 20. I was invited by the, the wife of uh, the Minister of Labor to a uh, penthouse terrace apart, a party of the Minister of Finance of France. And uh, it, was, it was a casual uh, 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 event. I was in the summertime, so people were dressed very casually, and they they had a cookout with hot dogs and hamburgers and that kind of stuff, right? Very high cuisine, French exactly. cuisine. Very French. And uh, I remember the line being very long, and I had uh, you know tried to uh, be impressive or whatever, uh, and, and I I said very loudly. Uh, mon Dieu, c'est un grand coup. And the wife of the Minister of Labor immediately grabbed a hold of me and said, oh, my God, you have no idea what you just said. <laughs> and uh, what I said was in colloquial French, my, what a big penis. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of what a long line this is <laughs> for the buffet line. Right. <laughs> In a penthouse. At a penthouse, the minister of finance's uh, penthouse party. Yes, <laughs> everybody laughed. I was the uh, I was the American, the embarrassing American. Right. And uh, everybody got a big kick out of it. That's wonderful. I heard a story years ago. I don't know if this is true, but um, a very prominent businessman had given his wife a, a very fancy diamond necklace they were going to the opera that night and she they were dressing and she was putting on her diamond necklace and he said what are you what are you doing what are you possibly doing I said well i'm you know putting on the necklace you can't put on that necklace the minister of finance will be at the opera and he'll see that we've got all this money hope he can raise our taxes so <laughs> so um one has to be careful with the minister of finance you know what you have to know your audience and you have to be very careful right <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, what kind of experiences um, do you think people need to know when they're in international business to to thrive? You know, I I, I get this question quite frequently because people want to know how it was that I got into the international space, mm -hmm. and was this something that I was able to do late in my career? 
I have to say, I was just plain lucky to have had the family background and the means to travel. Uh, I took advantage of programs that were offered abroad during undergraduate years, and I was never, ever afraid to, uh, to experience something new. Mm. I think that's the key is to, to, to get the exposure early. Take mm-hmm. it, you know, in undergraduate uh, education schools, there are a lot of uh, programs, foreign study programs, summer abroad programs, semester abroad programs, semesters mm-hmm. at sea. Take advantage of those. If you can do it, take advantage of it because it will set the course uh, for you for your the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I I took your advice. I did my um a, a sophomore I did a sophomore semester in France and I did my junior year in Japan. And in graduate school I studied in China, which back then was incredibly unusual. China wasn't open to the world yet. Mm. It's fascinating. Um how do you think that you adjust to a foreign market when the culture or the country doesn't match what you know? Well, you've got to get boots on the ground and, and learn. You've got, to, you've got to either tap into the local inhabitants or the businesses that are there or uh, set up a, a venture, a joint venture agreement with a a local business in order to get that inside of you. If you don't have the means to get it any other way, the best way to go in is in a a joint venture. Um, But I also think that, um, and this this, this somewhat relates, Uh, we, when I was at Chase years ago, uh, I was responsible for the sales and product management teams globally in three different businesses. And the product management teams would come out with new uh, financial instruments, products. And it was up to the sales teams, the international sales teams to deliver uh, and sell these to their client base, which was not necessarily in their home market. They may have had to uh, to travel. Example, uh, the African accounts, most of the salespeople lived in Europe and they would travel to Africa to the various financial institutions that were clients of Chase Manhattan Bank. And uh, what we realized was that sales were plateauing no matter how many how many uh, new in- uh, financial instruments or, or solutions that we came up with, the salespeople were, were, uh, had plateaued at whatever their sales uh peaks were or their sales levels were and we did some investigation into it what we realized is that the product management team and mind you this goes back to the early 90s the product management team uh would produce these uh manuals that would describe all the features and functions and and benefits and capabilities of uh, these new product solutions and binder in hard copy binder format and that these binders were staying in the office at the salespeople's uh, uh, headquarters. And they were traveling most of the time they were on the road to visit clients. And as a result, they only sold the the products and pitched the products that they knew the best. Mm -hmm. And they didn't pitch the ones that that were uh, coming out, the newer products. 
So we had to come up with a new solution that uh, and a new technology solution that enabled them to carry these uh, the information of all these products uh, with them. And it was a very rudimentary solution, but we came up with flashcards. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, this was before uh, laptops and all of that. Right. So we, we, we came up with uh, flashcards and a, a type of a, a gaming uh, practicing system for them that they could utilize on planes when they were en route to a, a different market. As a result, uh, the average increase in sales went up 20% per client. Because of the understanding, uh, understanding first off that there was an issue, we didn't know what the issue was, so we had to go in and investigate and interview uh, and do some research to find out what the what the issue was and then come up with a solution for that. That's very creative, yes. Um, when one does business in Africa, especially in other developing countries, there are very different ways of Packaging, for example, um, I don't. I don't know if you can share some of these stories. But for example, in the U.S., um, we uh, well, U.S. and Europe and developed countries, we would sell big bottles of shampoo, for example. Well, um, in developing countries, people can't afford the big bottle of shampoo, so there's so uh, like one or two. Uh, they're sold in little sachets, little packets for like one day at a time, and for pennies instead of dollars. <laughs> Um, can you share some stories like that that you know of? Uh, not uh, the actual sizing of uh, products, but we we do get periodically uh, someone that comes to the World Trade Center Atlanta. They're trying to get uh, product, especially raw material, uh, agricultural raw materials into the United States to be processed here and either sold to the local market or the U.S. market or then returned in a finished um, form back to the African market. Mm. The problem is that the uh, the U.S. and I'm sure Europe does as well. Excuse me. They, uh, we have a a very strict and rigid import process, and you have to not only know the quality of your product, but you have to know the packaging and understand the packaging and what is the what is the makeup of the packaging that that product is sent. Uh, to the U.S. in uh, what it, where what kind of wood does the pallet come from? Uh, what is uh, in addition to the wood? Are there nails? What what are the nails made out of? Where where does that uh, where does the raw materials for those nails come from? Where are the nails manufactured? Uh, where does the wood come from? Uh, if you use any kind of plastic wrap, where does that come from? What is the makeup of all of that? So there are a lot of uh, we have lists, we have forms that we uh, help um, foreign companies uh, to better understand their own products and what they're shipping in uh, and shipping their products in to be able to get it past customs. If they don't know that, they can't get it into the country. That's fascinating. I was not aware of that. Yeah. What is the purpose that why did the Americans want to know all of this? They don't want any kind of foreign uh, materials to come into the United States oh. to impact our local agriculture or our local environment. <clears throat> so you, if you remember, um, 
here in, in Georgia, oh, you, you, you're not, you don't live here in Georgia. In Georgia, we have a lot of kudzu. Right. And kudzu uh, can, actually comes from Asia. I, I believe it's from Japan, but I'm not positive. Uh, yeah. It comes from Asia. Yeah. And kudzu is a natural um, growing species that can tame, uh, I believe, weeds and that kind of stuff. But you let it get out of hand and it takes over the vegetation and yeah. it takes over trees and spreads wildly. We have, uh, we drive down side streets everywhere. And if they're not well manicured, the kudzu is just taken over. Hmm. And that's what they try to avoid is that kind of stuff. I think they also, the, um, you know, we have a lot of carp that has entered into our water streams uh, because of the, the goldfish and the koi ponds and things like that. So there are other, there are other species that are not indigenous to North America and not indigenous to the United States that have wound up here because somebody brought it in either as a pet, they brought it in as a plant, or it came in uh, via a cargo uh, container and it wasn't well inspected. So so the, the knowledge of what, of the packaging is really to protect American agriculture. Yep, exactly. Okay, now that's fascinating because I would, you know, I would think what difference does it make what, what difference does it make what the nails are made of? And so if, if the packaging itself is discarded, it goes into a landfill. Right. How does that impact the landfill? Okay. So they have to know everything. There are uh, containers that arrive at ports on the East Coast and the West Coast that go through very uh, strict uh, surveillance. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything in the cargo container that isn't on the bill of lading, and that can be as much as one feather. If that feather is not indicated on the bill of lading and it is detected inside the container, that container is shipped back to the place of origin and never opened. Wow, that's extremely strict. I, I know we have very strict agricultural protections here. I didn't realize that it was, um, you know, I, I didn't realize it was that strict in terms of the import manifest. Absolutely. And that's why when you travel as a as an individual overseas and upon your return, you're asked right. if you had visited a farm in the last so many days. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because of the soil that may be on your shoes. Wow. Um, that's fascinating. Now, when you cross the border, the land border from, say, Nevada into California, I, I've always thought it was amusing because it's like a custom station. You're entering the Republic of California, so they have their own customs post. But but it's basically an agricultural inspection station. You know, I, I have never seen those before, and I have driven from Nevada. I'm sorry, Nevada into California. And you've never seen one? I, I don't remember seeing one. Now, mind you, I may not have been behind the wheel. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's been a long time since I've made that trip. Yeah, they're just past Lake Tahoe. When you come in, I have been to Lake Tahoe before, uh, and we started oh, I, in California, went over to Nevada to Lake Tahoe, and then came back in. But I just don't remember; it's long ago. I think if you've got California license plates, then you waved through. I think that's the difference. So if you have a rental car, it's different. But <clears throat> so when I drove, for example, from Pennsylvania one time, 
cross country and I was bringing house plants and then they confiscated the house plants because those were illegal. We could not bring those into California because of right. the agriculture. So <laughs> I, I have, I, I have to share a little uh, um, story that we knew my parents knew uh, was illegal um, because my mother was German uh, my parents now are both deceased, but because my mother was German, she uh, we grew up in a very Germanic household uh, here in the U.S. And on one of the trips in the '60s, uh, when we spent our we would spend our uh, summers there and some winter vacations. But one of our summer vacations, uh, my mother and my grandmother went out to the Bavarian woods and dug up a little seedling for a pine tree, and we don't know. There are three children, uh, three of us children. We each had two bag carry-on uh, bags of toys, and my grandmother and my mother had wrapped it up in aluminum foil. Mind you, they, they didn't do X-rays back then, right? right? So they wrapped it up in aluminum foil and they placed it at the bottom of one of our sacks, and none of us ever knew who actually was the one that carried it in. <laughs> one of the children, one of the three children smuggled in this little seedling from the Bavarian woods and that little seedling was planted uh, in Indiana and it traveled from place to place to as my parents uh, moved and, and bought a new home they would dig it up and replant it the last uh, the, the last house it was too big before my parents for my parents to dig up and move down to Florida so they left it and it is this towering, uh, I mean, towering uh, pine tree that everybody, uh, I, I had gone back for a, uh, a trip down memory lane in 2009, and I stopped at that house and I happened to take pictures of this tree and the owners came out and I let them know that we used to live there and uh, they wanted to know where this tree, uh, if we knew anything about this tree because it didn't look like anything from Indiana. Right. Nothing, right. <laughs> We've been waiting for this tree to hit Rockefeller Center as one of the Christmas trees one year. It hasn't hit yet, but it's huge. I even got pine cones from it. Uh, but I explained the whole story. I mean, this this tree has to be every bit of over, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 feet high. Wow. It's huge. That's, that's amazing. It, the, whole under, the, the whole underside uh, canopy takes takes up a very large part of the front yard wow yeah so, <laughs> we did something we were not supposed to do oh, so child all, smugglers That's it great. all worked out but i would never recommend that to anybody no not not nowadays <laughs> that's wonderful um with based on all that you know now if you had the chance to give your past self some current advice what would you tell yourself do you think just have fun and stick to your goals. Have fun, stick to your goals. And when opportunity knocks, open up, open the door and say yes, as long as it fits in line with your goals. If it can help you uh, add some kind of additional depth to what you bring to the table, mm. uh, take advantage of it. That's great. Thank you. Um, one final question Are there any countries that you've dealt with that are that were very difficult very challenging very difficult those you know special issues that americans would never think of 
Well, I, I, yes. I mean, there are other countries like that all over the world, whether it's, it's culture, yeah. whether it is language, whether it's etiquette. Um, I can share with you uh, one of the big um, <laughs> issues that, that actually knocked one of the projects off track when I was at KPMG in New York. We were working with SAP, which is the, the large, the world's largest ERP um, provider in the world. I think they, they corner like 40 some or 50% or of the market. I, I know they're very heavy in at least manufacturing. Mm-hmm. We were trying to get them into financial services. We were tasked with, we were working together at KPMG. We were working with SAP to design a customer profitability solution. I was actually the brainchild behind the solution itself. Long story on that, then I won't get into at the moment, but at one point, uh, a meeting between senior executives at KPMG and senior executives at SAP, uh, the, there was a breakdown in communications. You know, the, uh, the, the German way of doing business is very blunt uh, to the point. They lay their cards out on the table, what they expect, and that's it. And the germ and the Americans are very um, they, they tend to be non-committal and they walk around on eggshells a lot. Uh, and the Germans were frustrated, the Americans were frustrated. At one point, the American executives at KPMG got up and walked out of the meeting and it derailed the project for a, a, a good month or so. And my grandmother. Uh, on my mother's side was passing away and I had to go back for the funeral. So I asked if I could just schedule a quick um, side trip once I land in in Frankfurt and uh, take a, rent a car out to Waldorf where SAP's global headquarters is and see if I can meet with them and, and, and see what I can do. I did that. I had two 45 minute meetings separated by a half an hour in which they convened and then they, then we, then we reconvened for that second forty-five minute meeting. I then went uh, back to the airport, dropped off my car, flew on to to Nuremberg, uh, attended the the funeral, and I was there for a week. And then flew back to New York. Though having put New York in the driver's seat, I nailed down SAP to next steps, deliverables, and timeframes, all because I spoke the language. I understood mm-hmm. their. Uh, the, the, their way of doing business, right. and I conducted it the exact same way, and they were very happy. Uh, and as a result, that solution is now part of SAP's CRM module. It's a customer profitability solution. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's so that what could have totally derailed the project mm-hmm. uh, was just a, a matter of un, a cultural under, a misunderstanding. Right. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, Max, it's been a wonderful pleasure to gain your insights and your stories and the, the humor <laughs> that you've shared, uh, both with the French and the Bavarian trees and so forth. Um, so thank you so much. I really appreciate your being here with us today. Philip, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having invited me. So this has been Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business.